Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son to be our everything, to be our king, to be our priest, to be our sacrifice, to be bread for our souls, light for our souls, living water for our souls. I pray that this morning you would help us to see who he is more clearly and worship more truly for the sake of your glory and our joy in your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Merry Christmas. We can say that now. Merry Christmas. So the word Advent you've never heard that word Advent, we use it to talk about the season leading up to Christmas. The word Advent just means arrival. So what we're doing in the Advent season is we're anticipating, remembering the arrival of Jesus. That's what we're doing. We're going to do it through the book of Psalms. We've been working through the Gospel of John, but for the next four weeks, we're going to see how the Psalms anticipate Jesus through four Psalms, and that's where we're starting today. Anticipating Jesus' arrival is what the Old Testament is about. So last week, someone who's not here told me about a pastor he knows in his home country who only teaches the Old Testament says, what do you think about that pastor? He never talks about Jesus or the New Testament. What do you think about that? Well, Jesus tells us what to think about that. In John chapter 5, he's talking to the Pharisees, and he says in verse 39, you search the scriptures, Pharisees, the Old Testament scriptures, that's what he's talking about, because you think that in them you have life. But it's they that testify about me. So Jesus tells us, when you read the Old Testament, it's about him. The whole Old Testament is about him. So if you read the Old Testament and you don't see Jesus through it, you're missing the reason the Old Testament exists. So it it would be like an astronomer. You know what an astronomer is? Someone who looks at the stars, planets, studies the galaxies, the universe. It's like an astronomer who knows everything you can know about telescopes. They study telescopes. They can take telescopes apart. They can put them back together. But he's never looked through one into the night sky. That's what it's like to look at the Old Testament and know all about it, but never look through the Old Testament to see Jesus. The Old Testament anticipates him. It's like a telescope. And our hope over the next four weeks is that we would be able to look through these Psalms and see the cosmic glories of Jesus in the different ways he's presented in these Psalms. They're preparing us to remember his arrival. Jesus comes as a baby. That's incredible. We sing about him being meek and mild. 
He says that he is gentle and lowly in heart. And that's true. And it's really good news. But he's more than that. His gentleness, his humility is all the more amazing because he's also the very same person who is going to conquer the world in anger against sinners. That's what Psalm 2 is about. That's what we're going to see. The point of this is to fill out your picture of Jesus. I want you to have a full picture of who Jesus is, not a lopsided or one-sided picture of Jesus because the better you know Jesus, the better you can worship. And that's what you were made to do. It's what you and I were made for. So that's what we're doing now. Kaylin just read Psalm 2 for us. Here's what we're going to talk about. We're going to start by talking about what it means to be the Son of God. That's really important for understanding this psalm. So that's what we're going to do at first. We're going to talk about what does it mean to be God's son in the Bible. And then we're going to look at why God is laughing in this psalm. And then we're going to see what God wants us to do with it, with this psalm. So let's talk about what it means to be God's son. If you don't get this, this psalm is going to be really confusing. Verse verse 7 calls somebody God's son here. The whole Bible is going to be really confusing if you don't understand what it means to be the son of God. That phrase is a big deal in the Bible. Now, we're going to talk about two different ways that the Bible uses the phrase son of God. It uses the same phrase to mean slightly different things. This is really important. Both of them apply to Jesus. So first, Jesus is the son of God because he has always come from God the Father. And so he is God the Son and has always been. That's the first way we're going to see that Jesus is the son of God. Here's the second way that Jesus is the Son of God, and it's different. It means that you're the king of Israel. To be the Son of God means you're the king of Israel. It's a title in the Old Testament and in the New Testament for the person who's king. And that's what we're going to see in this psalm. So let's let's just distinguish those two one at a time. In John chapter 1, so we've been working through the gospel of John. You remember we saw in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. So there's this person called the word who's with God, and he is God. And if you just keep reading John 1, you'll see in verse 14 that the word becomes flesh. He becomes a human. So it's talking about Jesus. Jesus is with God in the beginning, and he is God. And John tells us the word, this person, Jesus, has a particular glory. It says his glory is as of the only son from a father. 
So the person of Jesus has a particular glory. He is God, but his particular glory is that he's a son. He's God the Son to God the Father. He has always existed. God the Father has always had a son. God the Son. So that's one way that Jesus is the Son of God. And if you keep reading, you'll see, okay, he was the Son before he came into the world. So if you read John 3, it tells us that God sent his Son into the world. He was the Son and he got sent. 1 John 4, 9 says God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. So there's a way that Jesus is the Son of God that is unlike anyone who has ever lived because he has always existed as God the Son. That's, that's one way Jesus is the Son of God. Here's the other way. And this is different. It also applies to Jesus, but it's different. He's the Son of God... And it means he's the king of Israel. So if you, if you make your way through the Old Testament, you'll get to the book of 2 Samuel. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God is speaking to King David. And he says, David, I'm going to establish your kingdom forever. Your throne will last forever. And not only am I going to establish your throne, I'm going to establish your son's kingdom after you. And then listen to what God says to David. This is 2 Samuel 7 verse 14. God is talking about David's son, who was Solomon at the time. He says, when he's king, I will be to him a father. And he shall be to me a son. So God's telling David, listen David, when you die and you're gone and Solomon becomes king, I'll be his father. And he will be my son. And from then on, when you read the Old Testament, son of God is a title for the king of Israel. You'll see that in 1 Chronicles 22, 1 Chronicles chapter 28. If you remember, when we got into the Gospel of John, in the first chapter, near the end, Jesus meets one of his disciples, not his disciple yet, Nathaniel. And he knows something about Nathaniel that he shouldn't know. He says, I saw you under the fig tree. Nathaniel's amazed. Nathaniel's going, how? How did you know that about me? And do you remember what Nathaniel says to Jesus? He says, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. So Nathaniel sees Jesus and he goes, just like Solomon was the son of God, you, you're the one we've been waiting for. You're the promised king of Israel who's going to make everything right. That's what Nathaniel's saying. So, sometimes Jesus is called the Son of God because he has been God the Father's Son from all eternity. But sometimes he's called the Son of God because he's the King of Israel. Know that. That's going to help you. When you're reading the Bible, you've got to figure out, okay, which, which one does it mean? Is this going to save you from confusion? Listen, someday... Maybe it's already happened. You're going to meet someone who's going to say, 
did you know son of God doesn't mean that Jesus is God, the son? It means he's the king of Israel. So all you Christians are wrong. Well, no. It does mean he's the king of Israel in some places. And it also means that he is God, the son, and has always been. But the second one, the way him being the king of Israel is what this psalm is talking about when it talks about a son of God. Look at verses 6 and 7. Psalm chapter 2. First, God is speaking in verse 6, and he says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then the king speaks. Okay, so God is speaking in verse 6, and then the king speaks in verse 7 and says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. The word begotten means birthed. Today I've begotten, I have birthed you. This verse is not about Jesus being created by God. It's not what it's about. Just one simple way you can know that from reading is that in verse 7, God is speaking to someone who already exists. So he's, he's pointing to someone who already exists and says, today I've begotten you. Now this is the same as God saying to David, I'm going to be a father to Solomon. Now Solomon was already born when God said that to David. He was not telling David, someday I'm going to create Solomon. What he meant was, someday your son Solomon, who already exists, will become my son when he becomes king. That's what this means. So, so that means in verse 7, when God says, you are my son, today I have begotten you, he's not creating this person He's crowning this person as the king of Israel. That's what's going on in verse 7. This psalm is a prophecy about a future king that God is going to crown who is going to rule the whole world. The New Testament tells us that this prophecy came true when Jesus was raised from the dead. That was the moment that Jesus was crowned as king of Israel. Now listen to this, because we're going to hear the apostles, their understanding of this psalm and what's going on here. This is Acts 13, verses 32 through 33. Paul is preaching, and he says, We bring you good news, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, by raising Jesus from the dead as it is written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. That's really interesting, isn't it? Paul's saying, when I read Psalm 2 and God says to the king, today I've begotten you. Paul goes, I know when that happened. That happened when Jesus was raised from the dead. He says the same thing in Romans chapter 1, verse 4. Paul says, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God. He's talking about the King of Israel. 
He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So, Psalm 2 is about Jesus as the King of Israel. When God says, you are my son, today I have begotten you, it's a prophecy about the moment that Jesus will be crowned as the King of Israel. And the New Testament tells us that happened when he was raised from the dead. That was Jesus' coronation. Now, when Jesus died for our sins, he didn't stay dead. We talk about Jesus dying a lot. We should talk about him being raised from the dead more, probably. His death is so important because he's paying for our sins. But he didn't stay dead, did he? He rose from the dead as conqueror of sin and death. Now, just, just think about this. If you can face the wrath of God towards sin, which is what Jesus was doing on the cross, and you can come out of it, you can come out the other side. If you can be swallowed by the dragon death and slay him from the inside, who's going to stop you? He passed through the wrath of God. He cannot be defeated by death. If that's you, you get the crown. Because all things will be yours. That's Jesus. When Jesus rose from the dead, he was declared to be the king, the son of God. That's really important for understanding this psalm. Now, let's look at why God is laughing in Psalm 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, that's the king, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Why is God laughing? He's laughing because the nations, the peoples, the kings, the rulers of the world are plotting. They're trying to keep God and his king from ruling over them. And God thinks that's funny. I tried to think of an analogy for this. You, you may have to forgive the analogy, but try to follow me. Imagine a garden where flowers could talk to each other, okay? So it'd be like flowers in a garden talking and plotting against the gardener. Like, we're not going to stay in this garden anymore. We're not going to grow for that guy anymore. Snip, snip, snip. That's what happens in a garden. It's vain. Do you see that word in verse 1? The nations rage. The people's plot in vain. That means useless. It's pointless. It's vain. It is useless to resist God. You can rebel against him. You can disobey him. 
but you cannot stop him. You cannot prevent him from doing what he wants ever. And that's why God is laughing in verse 4. These little plants in the garden are holding up their leaves to God, the gardener, and saying, you can't do anything to us. We're going to take you down. It's thinking, driving around in the medians here. They put flowers in the medians. You see a bunch of workers. And then the next time you drive by, they pull them all up. Right? You've never seen one of those workermen laying unconscious on the side of the road with some marigolds running down the street. Have you? It doesn't happen. It's ridiculous. You can be an ugly flower. You can grow in an ugly direction. But you cannot stop the gardener from planting what he wants, fertilizing what he wants, pulling up what he wants, and cutting down what he wants. It's vain. It's silly to even think about. That illustration is less silly than the kings of the earth rebelling against God. And that's why God laughs. These little tiny kings, like Nebuchadnezzar, like the mighty Caesar Augustus, presidents, prime ministers, all of them, are saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision, and then the laughter stops. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. So he's saying, I've set my king where I want him to be. The rulers of the world might hate it, but they can't stop it. Here's the lesson, church. You can resist God. You can live in rebellion against him your whole life. You can shake your little leaf fist at him and say, I'm going to do what I want to do. Not what you want me to do. That's what the whole world is doing. That's what Psalm 2 is saying. The whole world is saying, God, you can't tell us what to do. We're going to do what we want to do, and we're going to win. And God says, no, you're not. He has decreed in verse 7 that his son, the king, wins. Have you ever watched a movie... You watched it through, and then you watched it again a second time, and it ended completely differently than the first time you watched it. No heads nodding. That's good. That's good. You haven't. If the good guys won the first time you watched the movie, you don't watch it again and go, wait, 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 wait. the bad guys are going to win this time. That's not what happens. Sauron's not going to win the next time you watch. Thanos is not going to win the next time you watch. The movie's been written 
It's been filmed. There's one ending. Now, in the movie, there might be bad guys who really want to win, and in the movie, they think they're going to win, but they're not going to change the outcome of the movie. God is going to win. Psalm 2. And he's going to win big through Jesus. And that means for you, I'm being really personal with you. Think about you right now. It means every single decision of your life is a winning decision or a losing decision. We know who the good good guy is. We know how the movie ends. Every decision against Jesus is a losing decision. It doesn't matter what the kings of this earth might do to you for the next 50, 60, 70 years. It doesn't matter. That's the point of this psalm because there's going to be a king who's in control of your future and will be ruling all things for the next 250 trillion years times 250 trillion years. That's perspective. Every decision in light of that future is a winning one or a losing one. The world can hate God, they can resist, they can kick against him, but it is written, his son wins. The son says, I will tell of the decree, this is verse 7, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. It is decreed that the sun will possess the whole world and will break them, conquer them with a rod of iron. This is Revelation 19, the last book of the Bible. From Jesus' mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is going to literally, physically conquer every nation and every person. He will show up at your doorstep. And the reason I say it that way is because we, I mean, we're singing songs in church, Jesus shall reign. And we don't think about, well, what is that going to look like? He's going to conquer every nation as a warrior. And someday you will look him in the face. That's not a fairy tale. You will. Consider that future for yourself. He's coming to judge all sinners and subject them to himself. So the Bible's telling us in Psalm 2, Revelation picks it up. And tells us that Jesus wins, and those who resist, he will overthrow in hell.
you think about Jesus like that? He's going to show up and he's going to lay civilizations flat. The mightiest kings, warriors who have ever walked this earth will cower before him. I won't read it here, but if you read Revelation 6, it talks about the greatest people of the earth are crying out for mountains to crush them rather than have to face the wrath of Jesus. It really is coming. Do you think of Jesus that way? Do you ever think about Jesus like that? God laughs because his son, the king, will rule all things spiritual and physical. He's decreed it, and it's vain to set yourself against his plan. Now, what does God want us to do with this psalm? God is telling you and me about this king in Psalm 2 so that you would submit to Jesus now with a mixture of fear and joy. Verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, hear that, therefore, this is the point. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So God tells us, because his son is going to conquer everything, serve him now. Now. Kiss the son now. That's the kiss of allegiance. You ever seen anybody bow down, either in real life or a movie, and kiss the hand of the king? You're swearing your allegiance to that king. And God's saying, do it now. Swear allegiance to him now, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. When Jesus comes back, his wrath will come quickly. It's going to happen all of a sudden when you're not expecting it. And if you have not bowed your knee to him yet, if you've not submitted to him yet, when he comes, it will be too late. That's what this is saying. His wrath is kindled quickly. I mean, when I was a kid, I really thought, I, these, these thoughts really crossed my mind. I thought, well, I'm going to live how I want to live right now. And then as soon as I start to notice that Jesus might be coming back, then I'll repent and everything will be okay. Anybody else think like that? Later. I'll deal with God later. Psalm 2 is saying, when he comes, it's happening fast. And it will be too late. So turn to him now. Submit to him now. If you haven't, the warning here, it's real. This is not a rhetorical flourish. You will be broken. That's what the king is coming to do. So please don't wait. This is God's grace to you. Please don't wait. He does not delight in the death of the wicked. He doesn't. It's 
why Psalm 2 is here, so that we, and I hope you personally would think, this is really going to happen. I want to submit to Jesus now. That's what this psalm is for. Blessed, this is the very end of the psalm. Blessed are all who take refuge. That means you hide in him. So if, instead of running away from Jesus your whole life, you run to Jesus, you will not face the judgment he's going to bring. God is not just taunting the world in Psalm 2. He could. He could have just said, I'm terrifying the kings, the rulers of this world. I've set my king on the hill. There's nothing you can do. Ha, ha, ha. Selah. Psalm 3. No. He's telling us this so we could turn. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is good news. Jesus' first arrival, Christmas, baby Jesus, was him coming to live among us, to be one of us, and then to die as one of us so that our judgment that we deserve for our sin would be placed on him if you trust him. That's why he first came. All of your sins can be washed away if you trust Jesus. All of them. If you take refuge in him now, there will be no more judgment left for you when he comes again. His second advent, his second arrival to conquer the world. Now we could end there, but I want you to see one more thing really quickly. God tells us more than that we should serve him and kiss the son in allegiance. He tells us there's a kind of attitude he wants from us, in us, when we come to him. Look at verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Have you ever been happy and scared at the same time? That's the kind of experience God is calling for in verse 11. Rejoicing and trembling, but in such a way that the trembling doesn't kill your joy, but increases your joy. Have you ever experienced that? That's what it's like to encounter God. If you've never experienced this depth of joy mingled with awe at the greatness and majesty of God, you may not have ever encountered him before. Sometimes, very rarely, we get this experience in nature. It's usually when we encounter something so beautiful and so big, we're amazed by it, but we know it could kill us. If you stood on the edge of the ocean, either in a boat or on the shore, and you think, it's so big. It could just swallow me up or crush me. And it's beautiful. 
Or you stood on the edge of a mountain cliff and you see the sheer drop off and the view and your knees are shaking but you love what you see. Or if you've ever been inside safe in your home and you've watched a lightning storm (laughs) and you thought, I can't control that. (laughs) That's scary. And I love it. That's a little echo of what it is like to encounter Jesus. And that's what God is calling for. It's what he's calling for. For you to encounter Jesus in such a way where you say, oh, you're good, but I'm nothing. (laughs) You could squash me in a moment, (sighs) but you're beautiful and you're all I want. Have you ever experienced that in prayer or in worship? That's what God wants for you. That's the kind of worship that honors his son. God wants you to cultivate. So there's, there's another garden analogy. You got to grow this. He wants you to cultivate awe, A-W-E, in your soul at who Jesus is. And this requires discipline. You got to be thinking. You got to set your mind on the great things of Jesus. You've got to think, wow, he's so powerful. I mean, he spoke everything, including the stars and galaxies, into existence. And he's coming back with wrath. And God wants you to cultivate at the same time a joy knowing that he's the one who's going to keep you safe. Do that. Do that. The trembling and the joy won't cancel each other out. They will increase one another. Many of us don't have categories for that. You might have to make new categories for God. I tried to give you some with the ocean, the mountain cliff, the lightning. But many of us think if something's happy, then it's light, it's fluffy, it's familiar, it's easy breezy. That's what happy means. It's funny. Or on the other hand, we think if something's scary, it's bad. That's a shallow way to live. There is a depth of joy that only comes mingled with the fear of God's greatness and power. And God wants you to know it in his son. Jesus, he's the gentle savior of the world. We're closing now. He's gentle. He really is gentle and lowly in heart. You can find rest for your soul in him. And he's the judge of all the earth. The conqueror who values his father's glory with a limitless ferocity towards those who do not value his father's glory. They are the same person. I want you to know the whole person this Christmas. I want you to grow in knowing the whole person this Christmas so that your worship will increase with joy and with trembling. Let's pray.
Father, would you do that in us? We want to see the greatness of your son's glory. We want to feel the joy of being dwarfed by someone so beyond us that we are, as Luke said earlier, dust on the scales. And to know that this one is our Savior and our King. Help us rejoice with trembling, God, and honor your Son now. And help us to look forward to his second arrival, to live in light of it. We ask this in his precious name. Amen.